0: All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 166. Jason Lingren is with me and we will be covering the onset of social media primarily. And we're going to address a lot of things in the second hour. We're going to take Facebook head on. And that's by design, of course, because we don't want to be censored by speaking openly and truly about things uh, of that nature. But One of the things we're going to address over and over, and we'll show it with the timeline and the companies that buy this, that, or the other thing, is that for some reason online, there can only be one. There is always one Amazon, one Facebook that matters. And even though there are other competitors, they limp along or they go away or they're simply outright bought and acquired. And there's a reason for all this. And I will remind everybody in the AI series, we pointed out that the social surveillance end cultural rating system developed in China under a communist regime is now ported into Australia. Uh, it's a thing to watch. It's a thing to think about. Uh, is everybody in this part of the world okay with living like that? Uh, I imagine we're all going to have to choose before long. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren, episode 166, and cover the onset of socialist media. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 166. Jason Lingren is with me today. And um, we're going to take a break in the middle of the AI series that we're going to deliver in surveillance capitalism. But the topic we're going to cover today fits right in. Uh, We're just going to run through social media. And in some ways, you could almost consider the modern era as before social media and after social media, if you really think about what what a big change social media brought to our world. But anyhow, welcome, Jason.
1: And a fine good morning to you. And indeed, I would say that the AI info goes hand in hand with the social media stuff.
0: Well, at this point, it's all run um, by what they like to call machine learning. Um, And, you know, we'll point this out here and there as we go through. But um, there will be a time in the future, I imagine, when people are writing the history of the early Internet, uh, which is why it's, you know, we lived through this. So... Uh, The information we lay down here, if nothing else, serves as a bit of a record from what we saw happen.
1: Machine learning. That sounds like a good album title, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) That's what they, for some reason, they don't like to say. But what's funny, I just saw, I was in a barbershop the other day, and I saw a commercial come on from, I think it was from Microsoft. And they were trying to tout the benefits of AI because it could now, in microseconds, find new flavors for your beer. (laughs) It's the first. I'm not even kidding you. The first ad I've seen to kind of get people behind AI. And so they use beer, of course, who doesn't like beer? Um, And they're telling you now because of AI, we have all these new flavors that we can put into your beer. Um, And at the end, it was a I I don't know whether it was beer or Microsoft, their advertising. But the main point was love AI. It makes your beer better. And does
1: it come from baby parts?
0: (laughs) You know, that's one thing they didn't mention, oddly enough. But anyhow, I don't I don't have a damn thing for, for the intro here, Jason. I have kind of backed off the computer for about a week here.
1: No, the last thing we did uh, was Jarenism Raw with Jaren and David Weiss.
0: Yeah, we did some stuff on TFR. We were trying to just go out anywhere we could. And what was ironic is um, a lot of those shows wouldn't play back. Um, I kept getting emails. But anyhow, let's, let's just jump straight into this. Let's maximize our time here.
1: Right. So before we start into the nitty-gritty here, let's just say that we're not going to name off every single piece of software, websites, apps, all of that that have popped up since the invention of the home computer in this history of social media. Instead, what we're going to show are the important marker points for social media's sure and steady creation from the way back when and how social engineering, of course, ties into it all.
0: Well, you know, there's a show called American Gods, um, and at certain points, I mean, they're just putting it out there in your face and they, they do a whole ditty on cell phones and social media um, to basically point out to you that you're tracking yourself. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is because before we had online things like social media. If someone wanted to know the amount of data they can know about someone back then, it would have took a team of people a lot of time to just know about one person. Um, That's one of the main things social media changes because if anyone's not aware, and it would be hard to imagine they're not, every bit of data online is collected now. Um, The the new kind of king used to be cash. Well, cash is not king anymore. Uh, Human data collection is what's king. But let's just jump right in here.
1: What social media has done, along with smartphones, is eliminated the need, at least uh, an immediate need, for guys following people around in trench coats and sunglasses. They know what's going on in your life because you told them what you had for breakfast and where.
0: That's a fact, not only that, you told them exactly where you were when you did it. Um, And another kind of ironic side effect of social media is it's one of these things where when it first happened, it was just such a great tool. All these people meeting each other, finding people they knew when they were young, that they'd been out of touch, all this was going on but over time, it's completely changed into something else. And, of course, like all good things, um, someone's got to get in there with a monkey wrench and continually make it worse and worse. But even the relationship portion of social media, slowly over time, it created all these relationships where it didn't really bring people together. They only know each other online. Um, the face-to-face interaction of human beings was diminished um, as a side effect. Of There's a lot of irony in all this that we're about to cover.
1: So loose definition for social media, websites and applications that enable users to create and share content or to participate in social networking. Yeah. Keep plugging. Go ahead. It's a generally accepted notion that human beings are social creatures, most of whom need some sort of social interaction for mental and emotional health. Social media taps into these needs to one degree or another and with varying results and effects upon the users. So let's break down what social media sites would generally be used for. Provide a platform to meet new people and make friends, often across great distances, any of whom they most likely would never have encountered in any other way.
0: You know... Well, one of the things that we should point out here is it's gotten to a point where so much of social media is basically driven by a human being's ego. Um, and anyone who wants to doubt that, think of a word that we have now that we didn't a couple decades ago called a selfie. Um, That's case in point. But what people are missing about all of this is there was no real publicly available way to put so many images of yourself, everyone you know, everything you've done and everywhere you've ever worked or been or these types of things. So people should keep that in mind uh, as we go across this dividing line that I'll just call post social media days. We got it now
1: allow users to join groups with others who share similar interests and subjects, and can share thoughts and ideas in a single location that can be returned to day after
0: day. And here's here's a prime example of what a great thing it was at first. Um, people with similar interests could all gather together and do these things scot-free, but look what it's become. Uh, it's It's become a way for censorship to just choose large swaths of groups of people. And it's allowed all their interests to be tracked uh, down to the finest infinitesimal period at the end of a sentence. And here's the terrible
1: thing. On the surface, these are not bad
0: things. A place for
1: people to discuss similar interests, that's not a bad thing. No. It's the people and the mechanisms behind it that's the bad thing. And of course, they know people are gonna wanna use these
0: things, because it's pretty cool. And then they're gonna use it for their own dark purposes. Yeah, that's kind of what's happened here. In the beginning, it was a brand new thing and it gave people access to a lot of other people and information and common interest, um, but it has become something totally different. And, uh, you know, you and I were were talking about that movie. What's that 80s movie? Uh, The Never Ending Story. You know, where the nothing is, is coming across. And in the AI series, we pointed out uh, that the nothing has started in China and it's already crept into Australia. Um, a big part of what we're going to cover in AI and, and the idea of this kind of changing sweep coming across the face of our world um, is driven by AI, AI and social media.
1: Well, Australia's not communist China. They should be booting those people right out of office immediately and undoing the damage that they're doing over there. That's the big difference right now. At least they can sort of do something about it. Whereas in China, you have no prayer of doing anything. You'll get run over by a tank.
0: You know, it's an odd thing how these things come to be because you can't imagine that some city or some group of, of people somewhere want surveillance nonstop everywhere they go but look how quickly it came into darwin and look how quickly i think it's sydney i don't know if i have that right i think it's sydney has announced they're already going the same way and this is all developed in what used to be considered communist china um and so you know you and i can sit here and say oh how ridiculous this is but guess what it's coming our way so maybe we shouldn't speak too quickly until we see how people in this part of the world um respond to what's about to happen here apathetic that's how i think they'll respond I don't know. Um, I I hope not, but it remains to be seen. Well,
1: there's only a small group of people fighting against 5G, and that's pretty freaking obvious how bad it is.
0: Well, with the controls that we talk about in groups, uh, it's hard to know how many people have concerns about this, that or the other thing, because the information is controlled at this point, isn't it? Um, Your search returns are controlled. Uh, Groups that talk about things that certain corporations don't appreciate, they're controlled. So it's just very difficult to understand truly the size of any group of people that are concerned about this, that or the other thing.
1: Next, specialized forums or platforms can provide a large network to potentially find a new job
0: or even a career. Which we'll get into with things like LinkedIn later down the road. Other networks, Twitter being a good example, have become an instantaneous
1: way to get a message blast out. Often this information can be seen as being raw without any sort of mainstream media bias or opinion mixed in as a written story would very likely contain, especially on a mainstream platform.
0: Right. But here's the rub. You know, I remember when Twitter first came out and I thought, I forget, was it 140 characters? I probably got that wrong because I don't use social media that much. But I thought, who the the hell wants to say a thing and be limited to, to just a sentence or two? But even in that, Uh, where you're thinking, well, people can speak freely. There's control mechanisms all around it. And it really skews the way people used to communicate to how they do it now. Most often, they are free. But as we have said
1: many times, that if there is no product being sold, then you
0: are the product. In fact, um, basically what we've done is we've taken all these free services, which probably one of the earliest maybe was email uh, as an idea, where we just got to open up an account and use it. And there's plenty of social media platforms. Everybody knows the same thing is true. But in fact, what was going on is the data that was driving it all was the price of admission. And what's really ironic about it is even though people like the CEO of Sun Microsystems told us in 1999 there's no more privacy, no one believed them at the time. And as a matter of fact, I speak to people all the time currently that think that's just conspiratorial nonsense. They have no conception of the value of human data.
1: All right, let's start doing the history. And we'll start with CompuServe. Founded in 1969 as CompuServe Network Incorporated, the earliest advertising shows the name with initial caps. In Columbus, Ohio, as a subsidiary of Golden United Life Insurance, the company objectives were twofold. To provide in-house computer processing support to Golden United Life Insurance and to develop as an independent business in the computer time-sharing industry by renting time on its PDP-10 mid-range computers during business hours. It was spun off as a separate company in 1975. It was a major processing and time-sharing service all the way Up to the 1980s. In the early 1990s, CompuServe was at its peak. It finally began to face real competition when AOL entered the internet field in 1991. By 1995, AOL became the leader for several years. The original 1969 technology used a very simple dial up phone line system. Oh, good grief, I remember those.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, And people can look back. As AOL comes, uh, it's right about the time the whole browser war nonsense was going on between Netscape and Microsoft. But, you know, it wasn't too long ago, Jason, people still had email addresses with CompuServe in the email and they were made fun of like that was some archaic dinosaur. But that's not the, rain. the main point for, for this that I think is important is some one line of research. I forget what it even was. Uh, and I was kind of surprised to read it at the time. But when I logicked it out, it made perfect sense, is that insurance companies apparently are some of the wealthiest corporations in the world. And during the research that I was doing, it claimed that it trumped oil companies, by a significant uh, amount. And so here we have a insurance company putting CompuServe on the map. So think about that.
1: How about something we use day in, day out, and I don't think our lives would be the same without it. And that would be email. And email came about long before the internet or even ARPANET. Early email was simply a file directory and that it would just put a message in another user's directory in a location where it would be seen when they logged into the system. This early concept was like leaving a digital post-it note. It is suggested that the first email system of this sort was Mailbox, which was used at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT as it's commonly known, from as early as 1965. Another early program to send messages on the same computer was called SendMessage. Some of the mainframe computers of this era might have had up to 100 users. Often they used what are called dumb terminals to access the mainframe from their work desks. Dumb terminals just connected to the mainframe with no storage capability or memory of their own, as they did all their work on the remote mainframe computer. Before computers began to be networked together, email could only be used to send messages to various users of the same computer. Once computers began to talk to each other over networks, however, the problem became a little more complex to deal with, as specific addresses were now needed.
0: Right, and what most people don't realize is that as this started to clear military usage, which we probably don't really know much about... um, For obvious reasons, Uh, the EDU or the university systems is where this is happening. So the MIT here, as is stated all the way back, uh, probably into the 60s, most people have no clue that if you look back, there was a beef at one point where it was claimed that MIT was in control of all the URLs. Um, all the web addresses being put out. Uh, Now it's ICANN or I forget what it is now. But there was a big to-do of people around the world complaining, why the hell does MIT control all of this? Well, here you go. Here's where the earliest uh, emails are being cited. Computer-based
1: mail and messaging became possible with the advent of the aforementioned time-sharing computers, such as CompuServe, in the 1960s. Informal methods of using shared files to pass messages were soon expanded into the first mail systems. Most developers of early mainframes and many computers developed similar but generally incompatible mail applications. This was, of course, a problem. Over time, a web of gateways and routing systems would link many of them. Many U.S. universities were part of the ARPANET, which was created in the late 1960s, which aimed at software portability between its systems. That portability helped make the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, or SMTP, increasingly influential. What is considered the first real email is said to have been sent by computer engineer Ray Tomlinson in 1971, being a test message to himself. The email was sent from one computer to another computer that it was sitting right beside it in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but it traveled via the ARPANET. Ray Tomlinson was working for Bolt, Baronek, and Newman, which was the company picked by the U.S. Defense Department to build the ARPANET. Tomlinson had been fooling around with two programs called Send Message and Read Mail, which allowed users to leave messages for one another on the same machine. He applied the idea behind these programs to a third program called SIPnet, which allowed users to send and receive files between computers. The combined technology allowed people to send and receive files that could be appended between different machines. On top of this success, Tomlinson is actually better known for introducing
0: the at sign as the locator in email addresses. So... I have problems with part of this. This is all acceptable history, of course. Anyone can look up these ideas. Um, but we, we were told, or actually when I was getting my internet technology degree, and this kind of crosses over, uh, we were told that ARPANET was busy uh, getting the first email going, and that one of the main aims of electronic mail was to decentralize communications for the military. In other words, uh, anyone who understands how email was put together was that it would go out in you know a thousand directions or something, and the first packet that arrived, that would be the route used to get the message to where it was going. Uh, The idea behind it is if an entire city somehow got blown off the map, and I put somehow in quotes, uh, it wouldn't matter because it's. decentralized the message was sent in many directions but here the mainstream is claiming this is how how it went but I don't know if you can remember Jason I remember the first time we were ever able to put things like images into email
1: good grief yeah well I remember how much of it was text all the way up until mm, at least the early
0: 90s I would think I don't really remember the date but it had to be in that ballpark when AOL was around, something like that, you know, 94 to 96, I'm just guessing because I really don't recall, but I do remember it was a big deal all of a sudden you could copy images from anywhere and send them, but the problem of course back then was the size of everything mattered because you were on a dial-up modem and you were going down phone lines that had next to no bandwidth. So even though it, you know, it was a big deal to do images, that they had to be like posted stamps.
1: Well, right at the beginning of the 90s was when I was in college, and they at least had a decent speed to whatever system they were using at the time. I honestly don't know. But I remember they had this giant system at Wilkes University called the VAX system. It was a text-based thing and was connected to this giant dot matrix printer that people are always running things off of. But yeah, that was the first time I'd ever heard of HTTP colon slash slash and all that. And I didn't even know what I was typing at the time. And <laughs> looking back, it's kind of funny. It's, uh, you don't even think about that anymore.
0: Yeah, I too remember the first time I ever saw hypertext transfer protocol on a thing, um, you know, and we're all learning what it meant then. But very few people are old enough to remember that what you're describing um, was the, the what followed the old EDU systems, uh, where they were using the internet long before AOL, and they had these weird browsers, and I remember them, used them a couple times, uh, Veronica, Gopher. Uh, there were no images, as far as I remember, it was all text-based, uh, but that's what kind of morphed into what you're talking about.
1: I remember a lot of people playing games, too, that were completely and utterly text-based just communicating back and forth basically like an instant messenger almost sort of thing and my friends all played it enough that they became wizard levels on everything and or whizzes I think they called them and I don't know I just could never get into it I I seemed kind of boring but what was cool is they uh, were able to dial into that system years afterward when everybody grew up you know
0: Yeah, I I remember the very same thing. And I used to be mystified why people would spend time with those things because you had to have one hell of an imagination. Uh, When I saw it, it was just like, man, that's more trouble than it's worth.
1: Throughout the 1970s, networking technology was continually improving. By 1974, there were hundreds of military users of email because ARPANET eventually encouraged its use. Email caused a major shift in the ARPANET's purpose. Also in 1974, Larry Roberts invented email folders to make mailing over the computer a bit easier and more efficient. In 1975, John Vitale developed some software to organize email. By 1976, email had really taken off, and commercial packages began to appear. Within a few years, 75% of all ARPANET traffic was email. By the end of the decade, we arrived to 1979's Usenet that allowed users to communicate through a virtual newsletter.
0: So, so much of this doesn't jive with what they were claiming was correct when I was in school for Internet tech. Um, they claimed that AR- ARPANET had been using some version of something like email for quite a while and the decentralization idea that I just explained a moment ago. So it's hard to know, but this is, this is what history records is correct.
1: Well, we also know there are black ops things going on, going back probably all the way to the beginning of the 20th century, maybe even earlier. So they may have had their own systems that were running in a different way that were doing similar things. But there has to be a mainstream history to this for to, as always, funnel down to everyday people.
0: Right. What I would have recalled before the research for what we're doing now came out is that it was at the latest or, you know, the early 60s or something, the claim that ARPANET had some kind of a messaging, decentralized messaging system. These things are hard to know now.
1: Once we get into the 1980s, home computers were becoming more common and the capability for real social media was becoming a reality. The concept of the bulletin board system or the BBS began to show up. A BBS is a computer or an application dedicated to the sharing or exchange of messages or other files on a network. The first ones were an electronic version of the type of bulletin board found on the wall in many workplaces, so the BBS was used to post simple messages between users. The BBS became the primary kind of online community through the 1980s and early 1990s before the World Wide Web arrived.
0: So I can recall when I was in Japan in the Marine Corps in the late 80s, uh, the first gunnery sergeant to install a computer and begin to input all the comm devices as a new way to track all that stuff instead of using paper. And at the same time, there was one early adopter of the technology, and this is late 80s, bear in mind, uh, where, where one of the people where we all lived, where all the Marines lived actually had a computer, and it was a brand new thing. So even in the late 80s, this was not widespread, but it was was catching on, and it would pick up speed as it caught on.
1: Mm, I think it was my junior and senior year in high school, I actually discovered bulletin board systems because my friend had lent me his 300-baud modem for my Atari computer, and I was able to hook the phone line of our house into that and dial into a music board system that someone had set up, and it was actually pretty cool over the time. It It felt like I was doing something very groundbreaking and new and modern, that kind of thing.
0: You know, the bulletin boards were very early on, and I can still to this day remember the first time I spoke to a childhood friend who was in Northern California on some AOL messaging system, and it was the first time I ever saw someone type in real time, and there it was on my screen, and I remember being blown away by it, Um, but I was pointing out, the only reason I mentioned that is because by the late 80s, computers were really still trying to catch on um, and be useful in some way.
1: In 1986, ListServe is introduced. It was a mailing list to allow users to contact multiple users in one email, a concept that is commonplace today, but quite revolutionary at the time. Later on in the decade, we have Internet Relay Chats, or IRCs, first being used in 1988, which would continue to be popular well into the 1990s when the World Wide Web is launched. As the 90s wore on, regular usage of the internet would become a common daily thing on the home computer.
0: This is an important point. Uh, I remember when the IRCs were here, it was like a little standalone window that would be on your computer and you could chat in real time with people, send files, these types of things. That was a big deal through most of the 90s, I think, Jason, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I remember everyone just really getting into it, especially this IRC thing. That, That I remember in a big way.
0: Yeah, it was a big deal when that first, everyone was doing it. Uh, And and it's, you know, I don't really remember its demise. I remember when it was super popular and I remember where I was working. So I know it was in the late 90s, Uh, but everyone was doing this at one point.
1: 1988, IRC, Internet Relay Chat, gave birth to the modern chat movement. IRC is the most widely used internet chat system, and as seems often to be the case with internet technologies, it was invented by a graduate student, this time from Europe, named Jarko Oikarinen, hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad, at the University of Ulu, Finland. During the summer of 1988, he was working at the University Department of Information Processing Science, where he administered the department's Sun Unix server. Tolson.ulu.fi running on a public access bulletin board system called Ulubox. Partly inspired by Jirki Kuopala's RMSG program and partly by BitNet Relay Chat, he decided to improve the existing multi-user chat program on Ulubox called Multi-User Talk or MUT, written by Pill, itself based on the basic talk program then available on Unix computers. He called the resulting program IRC and first deployed it at the end of August of 1988. When IRC first started regularly hosting users, he asked some friends at Tempere University of Technology and Helsinki University of Technology to start running IRC servers to distribute the load. Other universities joined soon after. Marku Yarvinen made the client program more usable by including support for Emacs Editor commands and before long, IRC was in use across Finland on the Finnish network Funet, and then on the Scandinavian network Nordunet. Arkurinen then got an account on the well-known machine ai.ai.mit.edu at the University of MIT, from which he recruited the first IRC user outside Scandinavia, Mike Jacobs, and gave the IRC software to Vijay Subramanium. Subramanian passed the software to his friends Jeff Trim at the University of Denver and David Blackman and Todd Ferguson at Oregon State University, who began running IRC on their machines, orion.care.do.edu and jacobcs.cs.orst.edu, respectively. They emailed Jarko and obtained connections to the Finnish IRC network to create transatlantic connection, and the number of IRC servers began to grow rapidly across both North America and Europe. IRC became well-known to the general public around the world in 1991 when its use skyrocketed as users logged on to get up-to-date information on Iraq's invasion of Kuwait through a functional IRC link into the country that stayed operational for a week after radio and television broadcasts had been cut off. In November of 1996, ICQ, a cross-platform instant messaging and VOIP VOIP client, is launched. The name ICQ is taken from the English phrase, I seek you. Other popular chat systems will pop up later, such as AOL Instant Messenger in 1997, Yahoo Messenger in 1999, MSN Messenger, also known as Windows Live Messenger, also released in 1999. Windows Messenger is released in 2001 as part of Windows XP, which is a bundled version of MSN Messenger, and I do remember these things being all the rage.
0: I'll tell you what, man. Some of what you just covered was what I consider to be the Wild West of the Internet. Uh, How many people out there were old enough to have used ICQ? This was one of the big IRC messengers. Um, It was everywhere. When I was just starting to work in the Internet field, everyone was using it. But I would point out one of the web addresses you gave here has AIAI in it. This is all the way back in 1988. So much for... for some of the claims that we, that we see, that AI hadn't really been online until close to the millennium, been going on for a long, long time.
1: In the 1990s, we see blogging develop. Links.net, created by Justin Hall, is considered the first blog that he created while he was a student at Swarthmore College in 1994. At that time, they weren't called blogs. He merely referred to it as his personal homepage. In 1997, weblog is officially coined. The word's creation has been attributed to Jorn Barger of the early blog called Robot Wisdom. The term was created to reflect the process of logging the web as he browsed. 1998 marks the first known instance of a blog on a mainstream news website when Jonathan Doob blogged Hurricane Bonnie for the Charlotte Observer. On October 20th, 1998, Open Diary, or OD, is founded, which is described as an early example of social networking software. The term weblog was shortened to just blog in 1999 by programmer Peter Merholtz. The original blogs had to be updated manually, often linked from a central homepage or archive. This wasn't very efficient, but unless you were a programmer who could create your own custom blogging platform, there just weren't any other options at this point in time. During these early years, a few different blogging platforms cropped up. LiveJournal is probably the most recognizable of the early sites. And then in 1999, the platform that would later become Blogger was started by Evan Williams and Meg Hurahan at Pyra Labs. Blogger is largely responsible for bringing blogging to the mainstream. After this, blogs would take off like a rocket aimed at the sea throughout the 2000s.
0: In some ways, Jason, I remember the first blogs. I remember the people who were doing it. They were um, computer science majors, people who made websites. uh, And it was really the precursor to what social media would become. But in those days, the weblog was almost like your own private social media where you put up all these things about yourself, the things you're interested in, the things you'd like to write about, all these links, um, just anything about you. But you controlled it as almost like a private web page. It's almost like in some ways this was the, the first social media. At least that's the way I remember it. Because suddenly this person you knew, you could know all these things about them and interact with them through their blog page.
1: It kind of seems like the concept that would be a precursor to MySpace as opposed to Facebook. Because MySpace, you put a lot more things on it about yourself, whereas Facebook, you're just yapping about individual posts all the time.
0: Right. And that's exactly the way I remembered. As, ma- As a matter of fact, I remember when we got to a point where people could finally put up short music clips. Um, for the most part, back in those days in the 90s, video video wasn't coming down the pipe. As a matter of fact, my first job had a lot to do with trying to stuff video down a phone line. Um, high resolution video at that time being run at 10 frames a second on a very degraded image and low resolution for the average phone line at three frames a second. That was the earliest video up through. Through the 90s.
1: I remember trying to watch the first trailer for the Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> coming down, dial up, waiting for the damn thing to load up. And we thought it was the coolest thing ever that we could see it that way.
0: You know, that's so funny, Jason, because I remember that. It was actually released at a time that I remember very well, and I was doing the first internet ads uh, that tried to incorporate video, and it was like this little postage stamp video at the frame rates I just mentioned. There was a little sniffer that would try to determine what bandwidth you had, so it could determine to give you three frames or ten. Actually, it might even have been eight frames. But one of the things that I had to figure out to do to all the videos was go skew all the white and all the blacks out of the color palette so that it would reduce the overall weight of the color palette. Um, This was about the time that phone was about to be big for a while. And when you're saying frames, keep
1: in mind that a standard movie is 24 frames per second or standard television or anything like that. So you're really knocking stuff out of the image, which is why the early stuff online just didn't look that great.
0: Well, what was funny is uh, we were I was working with big corporations, but one of the first videos I did that looked really pretty good was the nonsensical National Geographic Super Croc. If people can remember when Super Croc came out, where they're telling you about this dinosaur crocodile that used to live in our world. Um, I, I was producing the video for that, uh, and it was the first time that I'd reached a level where the, the video looked pretty good, but then again, uh, go ahead and try to compare it to, you know, what we what we look at now night and day oh man i was watching 4k video on youtube yesterday (laughs) exactly my point yeah i mean you're you're talking about a video window in a banner ad that might have been i don't know 50 60 pixels tall (laughs)
1: 1994 the palace also known as palace chat chat palace or just palace is a computer program to access graphical chat room servers called palaces in which users may interact with one another using graphical avatars overlaid on a graphical backdrop. The software concept was originally created by Jim Bumgardner and produced by Time Warner Interactive in 1994 and was first opened to the public in November of 1995. While there is no longer any official support for the original program, a new client has been developed
0: and is actively maintained today. You know, of all the things we cover, I don't remember anything about this, Jason. (laughs) I don't know if you do. I don't remember this one either. Mm -mm. Nope, not a
1: thing. 1996, Bolt.com is opened. It is considered the first social networking and video website and was active from 1996
0: until its final demise in 2008. That's so funny. You know, here we are in 1996, you know, really the wild west of the Internet days. And nobody at this time has a clue that in a mere four years, everything about everything is about to be different. 1997, what is considered the first
1: real social media website, six was a social network service website that lasted from 1997 to 2000 and was based on the Web of Contacts model of social networking. It was named after the six degrees of separation concept and allowed users to list friends, family members, and acquaintances both on the site and externally. External contacts were invited to join the site. Users could send messages and post bulletin board items to people in their first, second, and third degrees and see their connection to any other user on the site. It was one of the first manifestations of social networking websites in the format now seen today. Six Degrees was followed by more successful social networking sites based on the Social Circle's network model, such as Friendster, MySpace, LinkedIn, Zing, and, of course, Facebook. People who confirmed a relationship with an existing user but did not go on to register with the site continued to receive occasional email updates and solicitations. Macroview, later renamed to Six Degrees, the company that developed the site, was founded by CEO Andrew Weinreich in May of 1996 and was based in New York City at its height Six Degrees had around 100 employees and the site had around 3,500,000 fully registered members. The site was bought by Youthstream Media Networks in December of 1999 for $125 million. Six Degrees shut down one year later in 2000, then was brought back up a few years later. When I went to the web address, it did indeed work, although I was a bit disappointed that the main page contained multiple spelling and grammatical errors, so it doesn't seem like it's very well maintained.
0: This is where the tale of the modern internet is starting to emerge. Um, And the moment you dated it and said that it was around until 2000, you immediately understand that this is part of the dot com bubble. Then later on, when you say the insane amount of money and the huge number of users, you realize what's going on. But you see, to me, this is all just corporate engineering. Uh, How is it that there can only be one Facebook? Why can't there be 10 or 20 of them? Do we only have one kind of supermarket in the world? No, we have Ralphs. We have all these different kinds of supermarkets, but online, that does not be, seem to be the way uh, the corporations allow it to work. And so look at the number of users. 3,500,000 fully registered members, and yet it can't make it. And someone supposedly pays $125 million for it, and it shuts down a year later. And what do we have now? We basically have Facebook. Um, for some reason, hint, 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 there can only be one. 2.6 billion users on Facebook, by the way. There can only be one. <laughs> Greetings, Highlander.
1: Yep. Yeah. September 18th, 1998, the moveon.org domain name is registered and the site begins. It was originally set up as an email group passing around petitions opposed to the impeachment of Bill Clinton, a notion that was being pushed after the September 11th, 1998 release of the Independent Council Star Report. Oh, on September 11th, huh. Wonder, wonder what this is all about, Jason. Can anyone out there put one and one together? The site later went on to promote general Internet activism, including the opposing of U.S. military actions, supporting Democratic candidates in the United States, as well as fundraising campaigns. It is considered a forerunner of the numerous similar social media campaigns all across the political world we see today. Just for uh, researching sake, I checked it out and it was all pretty social justice warrior-y. It was uh, not someplace
0: I'd visit intentionally. Could you imagine sometime in the future reading the histories that will be written later um, and living in a timeline where they're true, and you look up the word psychological operation and moveon.org is the example used? (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, Jason. The previously mentioned blogging site
1: LiveJournal is founded on April 15th, 1999. It is considered a social networking site built around the idea of constantly updating blog posts. The site encourages users to follow each other as well as create groups that can also interact with each other. It is currently under a Russian company's ownership and
0: therefore must conform to Russian laws. And like so much of the Internet, uh, geography is playing a larger role every day. Uh, There was a time in the Wild West of the Internet where if you were in a country and you could get online, you could access damn near anything you wanted. Those days are long gone. And as a matter of fact, uh, you will notice one thing about like a lot of emails from Russia these days. You get spam from Russia and you can't unsubscribe. You're told, oh, the part of the world you're in will not allow you to hit the server to unsubscribe. This is the wholesale undoing of supposedly what the original internet was for, to connect a world. And yet what we see now is geography is maybe the biggest factor in what you can see, what you can search, who you can search, and everything else. And this bullet point says that in spades. And by the way, we're talking about 1999 here.
1: As far as today, get a VPN, folks. It helps a lot.
0: Yeah, even, you know, I, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I just I just got an email from someone in a certain part of the world. I guess I won't mention the geography. Um, I can't watch Shoot, Shoot the Moon. They're saying it's blocked in my area. And I said, well, I know other people in your part of the world that use a VPN to watch the film, so do that. But even things like VPN, uh, when enough people do it, you got to imagine they'll figure out a way to screw with that, too.
1: After Y2K comes and goes without even a whimper, Lunar Storm is launched in the year 2000. It was a Swedish commercial advertisement-financed social networking website for teenagers, which was also available in the United Kingdom before 2007. Lunar Storm was operated by a company called Lunar Works. According to the company's official statistics, the website had 1.2 million members in 2007, of whom some 70 percent were 12 to 17-year-olds. The website drastically dropped in popularity since then and in June of 2010 announced that Lunar Storm would be shut down on August 18, 2010 due to lack of activity.
0: I'll ask a simple question here before I make an obvious point. Uh, In the year 2000, how in the hell did they know the age demographics of their users unless that was part of the sign up and they're just taking the word of everyone who said how old they were? But I would imagine the very few 12 year olds sign up for a thing and inform, you know, the network, I'm 12 years old. And this is right in the bailiwick of the nonsensical world we now exist in, which is Y2K is, is for me, Y2K is the officiating stamp in the timeline of history that proves what I'm saying to be correct, uh, Y2K was billed to the world as the end of humanity. Potentially, and your ATMs will quit working. All these things are going to happen. And I was working in a dot com startup, and the first day we ever heard about it, we made a plan. We went in, we rolled all our servers forward. Nothing happened. We knew it was nonsense, but now we have 2020 hindsight. Y reduces to seven. Two is two. K is 11. 7 plus 2 is 9. K is 11. There is the stamp on the nonsensical, perverse kind of whatever you want to call it that we now live in daily.
1: I was eating pancakes at a Perkins restaurant that night, and I knew it was going to be nothing, and we were up all night. So by the time we left, the papers had come out, and of course, the headlines were that absolutely nothing had occurred.
0: Well this is this is case in point for so much of what happens in our world we didn't know a technical firm and this is as the dot Bubble starting to happen. So, all the dot com startups are looking at each other, their sites up, and I forget what they were called. They basically notified you which dot com had failed that day. Um, And this was a community. These people knew each other. They would call each other for help or call each other to say, Guess what? We're going out of business tomorrow. Will you buy all our stuff um, for 50 cents on a dollar? These kinds of things going on. Every single place knew this was nonsense. And yet, I can point To more than one family in the world that went out and spent something like $20,000 on 50-gallon drums of rice and all this other nonsense. And that was perpetuated, these ideas and that kind of activity through their church. Not even kidding you. But this this event, the Y2K event, is the official stamp in the record book of my life that separates a semi-sane existence to what we do now.
1: Continuing on, we have the social networking service Habbo, or Habbo Hotel, coming into being in 2000, predominantly aimed at teenagers. The service allows users to create their own Habbo character and design hotel rooms, meet new friends, chat with other players, organize parties, look after virtual pets, create and play games, and complete quests. It has expanded to include nine online communities or hotels, with users in over 150 countries. As of August of 2012, over 273 million avatars have been registered, with an average 5 million unique visitors monthly. 90% of Habbo's users are said to be between the age of 13 and 18. There are currently nine websites in operation.
0: Well, I don't know a damn thing about this, but if the demographic is right, that's probably why 13 to 18, do you know, have you even heard of this place, Jason? Maybe in passing, but no, not really. So what years? This This is 2000, and we're already starting to get into the idea of online things that people possess that don't exist, like avatars and digital pets and these other things, places they're designing, uh, as if they could walk in the door and be there. Um, This is a big dividing line at the millennium about how people think of things having value. Um, Let me tell you something. Back in the early 90s, if you tried to convince someone that some digital online thing had value, they'd have laughed in your face. But look at us now. Um, So much of what people consider to have value is wholly an online or digital thing that they will never hold in their hand.
1: Well, this is also one of the big ones for creating an online persona that interacts with
0: other people and you can add to it as you go along. And that's a big part of it, too. And um, that's a big part of the early days of what I call the Wild West, where you're using the Internet, um, but you're whoever you want to be. Um, Those days are coming to an end as Darwin, Australia ports out to Sydney and Sydney ports out to wherever the heck is next for the Chinese surveillance capitalism coming our way. um, Over time, there is I'll tell you where we're headed. We're headed to a part to a point where you have to be registered or licensed to use the internet. You want to log on, you got to ID yourself. You want to do something, you got to have the ID, the permission, the license to drive your car, the license to be on the internet. That is where all this is headed, finite control. We covered this in the decades series, but it still needs a mention on our timeline
1: here. January 15th, 2001 is the official launch date for Wikipedia. Not exactly a social media website, but it is still an
0: online community, and good grief do a lot of people use it. A lot of people do use it, and a lot of people disparage it, um, but maybe there's a good reason why they do. It was launched in 2001. So much of the new world that we contend with every day was launched in 2001. 2002.
1: Friendster.com goes live and is said to have been adopted by 3 million users within the first few months. Mainstream media publications such as Entertainment Weekly, Esquire, Spin... Time, U.S. Weekly, and Vanity Fair all wrote about Friendster's success, with the founder appearing on magazine covers as well as doing the boring late-night chat shows. Friendster's rapid success inspired a generation of niche social networking websites, with examples like Elfster springing up. After years of ups and downs, this
0: one had gone the way of the dodo like so many of the others. As did every website or service with stir on the end of it, friend stir, elf stir, all the stirs, uh, makes you wonder what was really driving that kind of thing. But here we are in 2002, and it's citing all these big magazines and other things are covering them. We have just entered officially into the period of time where all magazines that had been with us throughout my lifetime are beginning to realize that their life in print media is under threat.
1: Also in 2002, and still lasting to today in a certain form, Last.fm is launched. It was one of the first online music databases and online radio streaming services, such as is, of course, extremely common today.
0: Right. So the first time I ever used online streaming service, which was amazing at the time, all this music, all you had to do was look it up and it would stream right to your computer as you worked. The first time I was ever aware of that and used it regularly as I worked, writing code or whatever I was doing was in 1998. Here we are in 2002. Um, A lot of it was underground at first and it didn't work very well. And the music quality was not great. Um, But I would contend, um, that last FM is really not the first of these. Maybe it's recognized as big enough to be called first, but this was going on, in my estimation, since 98. In 2003, we have
1: LinkedIn, and it is a business and employment-oriented service that operates via websites that then moved into mobile apps. Founded on December 28, 2002, and launched on May 5, 2003, it is mainly used for professional networking, including employers posting jobs and job seekers posting their CVs, or curriculum vitae. As of 2015, most of the company's revenue came from selling access to information about its members to recruiters and sales professionals. As of March 2019, LinkedIn had 610 million registered members in 200 countries.
0: So if I had to venture a guess, and this is an educated guess, two of the most valuable databases in the Western world uh, would have to be LinkedIn and Facebook, Um, and that's for obvious reasons. Think of the finite, accurate information that is posted on a place like LinkedIn, where you might find people on Facebook fudging this or that or trying to use images that make them look better or lying about things. Um, A place like LinkedIn, this is less so because it's all about business and employment. So from my educated guest standpoint, I would estimate that LinkedIn database in the era of human data collect- collection, which is the new currency, is one hell of a valuable thing.
1: In May of 2003, the image-sharing site Photobucket is launched. Now there is an online community for people to post millions of pictures of their kitty cats. Another similar site pops up in 2004 called Flickr.
0: I remember all this very well, and what you're looking at, at this little timestamp stamp in the historical timeline called 2003, is things are about to rev up. Um, now people are getting ready to watch video, post images of any kind, stream music. It's really, the internet is becoming a wholly more developed thing around this era.
1: And our last point for Hour 1, June 23rd of 2003, Second Life. An online virtual world that was developed and owned by the San Francisco-based firm Linden Lab is launched. By 2013, Second Life had approximately 1 million regular users. At the end of 2017, active user count totals between 800,000 and 900,000. In many ways, Second Life is similar to massively multiplayer online role-playing games. However, Linden Lab is emphatic that their creation is not a game. There is no manufactured conflict, no
0: set objective. It's ironic they call it second life, because in this period of time, um, what you did on the internet was could very well be described as a second life. It wasn't necessarily you or your identity or anything about you. It was how you acted online. But I'll state for the record again, um, these days are going away. These days are going to be a thing of a past, and I had to take another educated guess sooner than we all think. Um, There will come a point when everything about the internet is controlled, um, where your identity is your passport, uh, where social rating systems are attached to everything you do and say. And the only reason I'm bringing this up, and it will occur again in more of the AI series that we do, is can you imagine people who are now roughly 20 years of age who have never known a lifetime before the internet – These people have interacted with all these tools that we've been outlining and others that have put a complete snapshot of nearly every second of their life, where they were, who they did it with, who they knew, everything. And that includes every comment they have ever uttered online. All these things are going to be conglomerated at some point in the near future if it's allowed to happen to create your social rating. Happening in China, poured it out to Darwin as a poke in the eye to let everyone know what the evolution of the Internet will be for the Western world and said to be on track to go into Sydney, Australia soon. So people need to think about these things. And I would ask a simple question as we wrap up hour one of episode one hundred and sixty six. How have you conducted yourself online? Would you be proud to put your face on all the things you've said and done, all the content you've reviewed all the websites you've visited, because those are all known things. Whether you want to admit it or not, they are all known things. And as a matter of fact, they can be tied to your real world identity now. So even though we act like there's some modicum of detachment from who we really are and who we are online, it's a farce. And by the way, that's going to be codified in short order if the powers that be get their way. You will actually need to be you real world you to go on the internet and use services. Um, But we're going to get into a bunch of things in hour two um, that were pushed into hour two for good reason. And this is a bit about what we're talking about. A few years ago, I could say anything I wanted online. And even though I never harm anyone, that's not the case anymore. My content will be pulled. I will be issued strikes. I will get warnings. Any number of things will happen now as the lockdown and control of the internet creeps forward.
1: Let's be honest about one thing before we sign off for Hour One. A lot of people, too many people, are complete cowards hiding behind their keyboards and say and do things that they would never have the guts to do if they were standing in front of you
0: in person. Well, let me tell you something, Jason. They're going to own it before sooner than they think if things continue in the way they will. You know, in some ways, you could legitimately state You know, people look over what we like to call communist China in this part of the world and say, damn, what's wrong with those people? All the surveillance going on and all these social ratings tracking everybody's phone. uh, Why don't they stand up against it? Let me tell you something that's going on here now. All those things you've done online that you think are not attached to you. I got news for you, brothers and sisters. It is attached to you it's just not being enforced yet it's being creepily creepily sneakily moved forward so this part of the world that claims to be more familiar with the thing we call freedoms probably won't accept it but i got news for you there too you're going to probably be expected to accept it a lot sooner than you think you're ready for unless something big changes anyhow that does bring our one of episode 166 covering the onset of the modern internet and social media and we're going to cover many things in hour two that most people should have in the front of their mind every time they logged on anyhow join us over at crow triple seven radio.com for hour two and let's get into some things that every human being who uses the internet should know cheers